Hey, We The People listeners. We need your help to make this show even better. Go to bit.ly slash WTP feedback to share your feedback. That's bit.ly slash WTP feedback. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We The People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss one of the most hotly contested questions in privacy law and policy today, and that is the Apple case. In December 2015, Syed Farouk and his wife attacked Farouk's co-worker in San Bernardino, California. The attack killed 14 people. In the investigation that followed, the FBI tried to access data on Farouk's iPhone, but security mechanisms built into the phone have prevented the FBI from doing so thus far. Now the FBI is trying to force Apple to help FBI investigators gain access to the phone. A federal judge ordered Apple to assist, but the company has refused to comply. Both parties will appear in court on March 22nd for a hearing on the issue. Joining me to explain the stakes in this crucially important debate and to evaluate the best arguments on both sides are two attorneys who have filled who have filed superb amicus briefs on both sides of this case. Joseph DeMarco is a partner at DeVore and DeMarco LLP. He filed a brief on behalf of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association in support of the government. And David Green is senior staff attorney and civil liberties director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He filed a brief for EFF on behalf of 46 tech uh, companies and researchers and cryptographers uh, on behalf of Apple. Uh, Joe and David, thank you so much for being here. Happy to happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, Joe, let me start with you. Uh, can you state uh, as concisely as possible the facts of this case? How did the iPhone get locked, and what is the government asking Apple to do? Sure. Um, in essence, um, the question centers on the search of one of the electronic devices used by the terrorists uh, leading up to the time of the attacks in San Bernardino, California, in which about 14 individuals were killed or injured. And as part of its investigation after the crime, the government obtained a search warrant for one of the vehicles used by uh, the terrorists. And the search warrant, uh, which they presented to a neutral and independent magistrate judge, asked for uh, permission to search the vehicle and any closed containers in the vehicle for evidence of the crime. One of those closed containers included an iPhone, uh, which turned out to belong to um, Sayud, the, the man of the, of the male-female couple, who was a county employee. He had destroyed, he and his wife had destroyed several other digital storage media um, but for whatever reason, this one device was not destroyed prior to the time that they were uh, ultimately killed. And the government obtained a search warrant to search it as part of a, a search warrant to obtain uh, evidence inside the vehicle. The device uh, belonged and still belongs to the county health department, uh, which is the entity he worked for. Um, they consented to the search of the device, uh, and he was the authorized user of the device, and according to the record, it seems undisputed that he signed away his rights, uh, his privacy rights, attendant to that device. The government obtained that uh, search warrant and uh, presumably searched the car. But before uh, actually attempting to search the device to guess the password that protected the device, 
went to court and asked for supplemental authority to compel Apple to assist them in that search. The device in question is running an operating system uh, uh, of Apple's, the current version of which, and the way it's configured on the device, means that if the government, after a certain number of times, guesses the wrong password, all the data on the device will be uh, encrypted. Um, and because of a technical glitch with uh, the government's attempt to search the iCloud account belonging to um, the terrorist, um, if the government guesses the wrong number of times, all of the data on that phone uh, will be encrypted. And because the encryption key is stored on the device, um, the device will, the data will be unrecoverable. So the government went to court, uh, ex parte, uh, as with the search warrant, and asked the court for permission to get an order compelling Apple to help it. Uh, and the order that they got specified that Apple was required to help it in three different ways. First, Apple is required to uh, create a custom-made operating system for this device, which will disable the auto-encryption feature that I just described, uh, so that the government can guess uh, a limitless number of possible combinations in order to uh, search the device without the device freezing up. Second, it asked uh, the court to require Apple to create software as part of this program, which would enable it to guess the password on a very fast basis. Uh, currently, the way the system is configured, the way the operating system is configured, you're required to wait a certain amount of time between each guess. Uh, and by virtue of the fact that the government will need to make many, many guesses, uh, if there's a long period of time between guesses, it could take uh, a very long time to, to do that guessing uh, electronically. But if the time is reduced to a very small amount of time, it can actually be accomplished in a reasonable period of time. And thirdly, the court order requires Apple to allow the government to guess those passwords uh, remotely instead of being inside Apple's facility. So it's a very, it's a very kind of, I would say, um, bespoke order uh, asking Apple to do three very specific things, uh, which will, of course, require Apple to write code to do these three specific things on this one specific device. And I, I think I've boiled it down as much as I can, but I've probably left some things out. No, thank you very much for that very helpful uh, introduction to the facts. Uh, David, do you have anything to amplify or add? And do you agree uh, with Joe that it, this is a, a bespoke order? Yes, I, 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 I essentially agree with, uh, with, with, with how he set out the facts. And, and, I, I, and I actually like the characterization of this as a, as a bespoke order because I think one of the things that's really extraordinary about, about the order is that it does require someone to create technology that doesn't currently exist. Um, uh, that which is which is much different than the way the All Writs Act, the law that authorized the order, has been used in the past. Um, it's been used in the past to require uh, new telecommunications providers to I install a install a, a some type of surveillance device that already exists that the government gives them. Um, but it, it, I, I'm not aware, and, and we looked uh, of any situation where this law has been used. Uh, to authorize the government to to force somebody to create a technology that doesn't exist currently. Great. Well, that brings us squarely to the central legal issue in the case, and that is how the All Writs Act should be construed. As initially enacted by the first Congress in 1789, the All Writs Act provided the following. 
that all the before-mentioned courts of the United States shall have power to issue writs which may be necessary for the exercise of their respective jurisdictions and agreeable to the principle and usages of law. Uh, this is a large and complicated and close legal question, but Joe, uh, why do you believe that this All Writs Act authorizes the magistrate's order to Apple in this case? Sure. So the the All Writs Act, as you correctly point out, is is a very old law, and it essentially is a law which enables the court to issue orders to give effect to its prior orders. Uh, at common law, uh, if you had the wrong writ and you went to the wrong court, uh, you could not get relief. Uh, and so what the original founding fathers decided was to reform the law and allow all courts uh, having jurisdiction to issue all writs in order to give effect to their prior orders. Um, now, of course, the, the key and operative language, what we're, what we're discussing here, is whether or not the uh, application of that is reasonable and in conformity with uh, with existing law. And uh, I think what the government would say, and what uh, Amici um, believe to be the case, is that although this precise fact pattern has not arisen in the application of the All Writs Act, the All Writs Act is a broad enough and, and plastic enough act to encompass uh, this form of assistance. It has been used uh, in telecommunications cases to ask the phone company to do something. It's been used in uh, in the banking context to ask credit card companies to provide information. Um, and it follows on and really underlies the common law principle that the citizenry is expected to give aid and assistance to the government, which is reasonable assistance, in the investigation of uh, offenses committed against the king's peace. Um, so while it's Specific application here is is unique. It is it has not been ever applied on these precise facts. Um, the terms of the law and Congress's intent in passing it was not to illuminate instances of when it could be used and couldn't be used, but rather give courts broad authority to broadly enforce their prior orders. And here, that prior order would be the search order of the vehicle. Great. Okay, now we're digging into the construction of the All Writs Act, and you noted a bunch of factors that courts have noted in, in interpreting it uh, that you, there were three factors that courts have interpreted to the plain text of the law. The issuance of the writ has to be in aid of the issuing court's jurisdiction. Second, the type of writ has to be necessary or appropriate to provide the aid. And third, the issuance of the writ has to be agreeable to the usages and principles of law. That just jumps off the text. And then there are three additional factors that uh, the Supreme Court recognized in uh, the New York telephone case, which I want uh, David to tell us more about. And those involve the closeness of the relationship between the person uh, to whom the writ is directed and the matter over which the court has jurisdiction. Second, the reasonableness of the burden to be imposed. And third, the necessity of the requested writ to aid the court's jurisdiction. David, tell us more about those factors and about the New York telephone case from which they came and how you think they cut when applied to this case. Yeah, so uh, without going into too much detail about the New York telephone case, but you do have a situation there where a telephone uh, provider was asked to install what's called a trap-and-trace device, uh, and this is a device that records um, if you, you essentially attach it to a phone line, and it records uh, it records the, the the data about what calls are made. It doesn't necessarily record the content, it's different from a wiretap where you're actually listening to someone's calls, but it will record uh, what numbers um, uh, a person calls and also from what 
numbers a person receives calls, you know, the duration of those of those calls, uh, information like that. Uh, a trap and trace device is a fairly routine uh, a tool that's used um, uh, that has a, that has a variety of applications and and is a fairly well established uh, a, a tool for um, for the government acquiring this type of of telephone information. What the court said in New York Telephone was looked at that and said that if you're investigating when this device is used um, in order to uh, to find out information about someone who is suspected of committing a crime, that you have a close enough fit now with the All Writs Act. And, and the facts in that case were, were especially compelling. We found that this was one of the uh, only ways they were going to be able to obtain this information. The information was going to be central uh, to to solving the crime, um, and that it really was going to the, cent- the central part, which was really trying to identify whether it confirmed that somebody was the perpetrator of, of a crime. Um, and you did get the court in the, term, in, in the course of the case really looking at, and I think especially the second and third factors, the statutory factors of necessary and appropriate and agreeable to the principles and uses of the law, and saying, well, this is what we think those mean. Uh, we want there to be a closeness of relevance. We want this to be something that goes to a central, a central issue in the investigation. Uh, um, we really, and they really, uh, they also looked at this idea of how burdensome was this going to be on the third party because these typically are applied to to third parties, so, to those who are who are not directly involved. They're not they're not suspects. Um, there's different tools in those cases and, and different complications there as well. But are we going to burden someone unreasonably uh, if we require them to do what, what the writ requires? And then again, uh, look, at the, um, look at the necessity. How, 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 how important is it that the, uh, that the government gets this, the information that it seeks? Um, in that case, it found that those factors were satisfied. I think without getting into any constitutional arguments here, and, and I believe this is really mostly what Apple argues in its own brief, is that this is a what's being asked of them here is, is tremendously burdensome. Um, they said it's going to require a, a full-time staff of engineers uh, working full-time two to four weeks uh, to develop this new technology. Um, it's then going to require you know, extraordinary efforts for them to actually preserve uh, this technology in a way that would make any evidence that was obtained from the phone usable in court. So it's not just enough that you you find information you turn over to the government. Um, if a criminal defendant now wants to challenge the admissibility of the evidence and the reliability of the evidence, they have a right to know exactly what Apple did, right, to make sure that this it was information that was actually obtained from the phone. So I think without even getting into any other constitutional issues, if you just solely look at the burden argument here, this is a tremendous, this is a, something that's it's tremendously burdensome on Apple. Wonderful. Well, we will get into the constitutional issues in a moment, but thanks for tabling them. And let's focus squarely on this statutory argument. Joe, David says that unlike the New York telephone case, um, installing this technology, unlike a pen register, would be extremely burdensome. And he's also suggested that unlike the New York telephone case where Congress had authorized pen registers, here Apple is arguing that Congress has already passed a law 
called the Communications Assistant for Law Enforcement Act from 1994, which specifically says that telecommunications carriers shall not be responsible for decrypting or ensuring the government's ability to decrypt. So basically Congress has rejected this kind of uh, solution. What is your response on both of those points? Sure. So I think I think you can't isolate burden without talking about necessity because they the two are linked um, and and you can't you can't evaluate one without the other. I think with regard to burdensomeness, um, you know, we we have to take account that we're dealing not with an entity that is without resources. We're dealing with an entity that's you know one of the largest wealthiest uh, companies in the world and has, for all intents and purposes, vast vast resources and. You know, a team of several individuals working two to four weeks. Um, you know, again, the court will decide whether that's unduly burdensome. But I think it bear it. It just we should bear in mind that we're dealing with a company, an organization that has incredibly vast technical skill and incredibly vast resources. As far as having to preserve that evidence uh, for use at trial, I think that's actually a, a not not terribly persuasive because in the end, part of what the government is looking for this investigation information for is to continue its investigation of other individuals. And even if the actual evidence recovered is not introduced into any courtroom, the fact that it provides leads to look for other people that have committed this crime or would be committing additional crimes is independent uh, reason enough to get at it. And I think if the government is willing to risk not being able to use the information in court, then that's certainly a, a, a strategic judgment that it can make, and it's made the judgment that that is a, a risk that they are willing to take. Um, I think it bears there two things bear in mind. One is, if you look at the amicus brief filed by the victims, there were reports, according to some of the people who were present when the shooting occurred, that there were not two shooters, but three shooters. Now, again, I'm just reporting what's in the amicus brief filed on behalf of the families of the victims. But if that's the case, if there is or was another shooter involved in this particular attack, then obviously the stakes go up dramatically in terms of trying to find out who that other individual is. Of course, there could also be accessories after the fact, people who are culpable uh, down the road as well. So I think that in terms of burden, you have to evaluate both the fact that, you know, you're dealing with the largest corporation in the world uh, and that they said they could do it. It won't be easy, but they could do it. And the fact that the evidence uh, that could be recovered is extremely high, the value of that. In terms of necessity, I think that, you know, goes hand in hand with burden. Um, It is very clear that these individuals, the terrorists, went to great lengths to destroy electronic evidence. They presumably did that for a reason. For whatever reason, one device got away. Um, The device's information in Apple's iCloud system is not accessible. The terrorists are dead. There's no other way to get at this this data. And this is not an isolated case. If you look at our brief, we talk in our brief about the case of Brittany Mills. Brittany Mills was a 29-year-old woman who was pregnant and gunned down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the front door of her home when she opened the door one evening several months ago. She did not have a home computer. She did not back up her iPhone to the cloud, but she did have her iPhone on her, an iPhone which has current operating system software. And if the police try and guess the password on that iPhone and they guess wrong and no one knows what that password is, they potentially are going to eliminate evidence that they believe contains the only leads to solve that murder. 
So the necessity is that's just one example of many where the necessity of this information is extremely high. And in that case, you know, Brittany Mills' family has asked the DA, the local DA, to uh, to decrypt to uh, unlock the phone. Uh, Apple is not providing any assistance, and the DA down there in Baton Rouge is at his wits' end as to how he can solve the unsolved murder of a pregnant woman gunned down at her front doorstep. So these, from our perspective, from our, uh, our client's perspective, law enforcement officials, are the real-world cases which will come into play uh, in this case and why we believe that the court should uphold uh, the ruling and require Apple to provide the assistance that it's been asked to provide. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, David, your response to those claims and also to the response of the government that Apple has not resisted similar orders in the past and has complied with FBI with similar FBI requests in almost 70 cases. Uh, why is Apple resisting now and how legally and as a statutory matter is this case different? Yeah, and let, let me reply to, to Joe's points first. I think one of the most telling things Joe said was this idea that when, you know, in, in, a, in order to minimize the evidence preservation burden, which I, I do think is actually quite significant, um, that you know the government would have to take a risk that it actually wouldn't need this information. This would just lead to something else. And I think that really cuts against the idea that this evidence in this particular case is necessary um, or is or is centrally relevant. Um, if they're willing to waive the, if they're willing to say that any evidence we get is not going to be stuff that we know we're not going to be able to use in court, I think that really uh, weakens their argument that they actually think they're going to get useful information. Um, or centrally useful information in this case. And again, I do think even if it's the largest company in the world, uh, devoting a whole team of people, taking them away from their normal work for up months, um, is quite is quite a burden. And and again, furthermore, you know, there's with other ways this 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 law has been used. You look to a previous legal authorization. Um, and here we have instead the opposite, where we have with Kalia, the law that that Jeff mentioned earlier, that Congress, you know. Intentionally decided not to extend the uh, CLIA requires um, requires uh, telecommunications providers uh, those who provide the networks um, you know such as you know, Verizon and AT and T requires them to offer certain types of assistance to law enforcement and the communications device manufacturers. Um, and others were specifically exempted from that law. So I do think that points out how this really is not what Congress, at least currently, intends this law to be used for. In terms of the previous assistance that Apple offered, as far as I know, and again, we don't, we don't know a ton about this, because most of this actually is not public information, uh, but they, they weren't asked to do some, what they've been doing here, which is essentially you rewrite their operating system and create a product that doesn't currently exist. They've offered assistance in terms of, and they in fact did the same thing in this case, where tried to, you know, instruct them on how they thought they might be able to get the information off of this phone without doing the type of operating system modifications that would be required in this case. So I really believe that those are, that what they're being asked to hear is is really extraordinary, um, and I. It shows that Apple is not doing this just to be recalcitrant. It's not like they don't like law enforcement and don't want to help in investigations. It's just they've drawn a line and said, we'll help where we can. We'll offer technical expertise that we already have, but we won't create just a new product for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Well, this is great. And let me restate, if I can, the statutory arguments on both sides. And then I want to turn to the Constitution, because this is, after all, the most thrilling constitutional podcast in America. So what I hear uh, uh, Joe saying is that this really isn't much of a burden on Apple. It's very rich, uh, and it has the ability to create this technology without too much trouble. And the evidence is absolutely necessary for solving this important case. Uh, David responds that Apple has not created similar technology in the past and that Congress has specifically declined to provide this authority and therefore that distinguishes it from previous cases. And there was much uh, more to this rich debate than that, but that's that's some right. of the statutory dispute. I'm Nicandro Yanachi, producer of We the People. We'll return to our conversation with Joe and David in just a moment. Before we do, I want to take a second to thank you for listening and to ask you to help us make this podcast even better. We here at the National Constitution Center are very proud of the show, and we are so grateful to all of you for your support and for your commitment to thoughtful, nonpartisan debate. However, we know that we can always improve. And at this particular moment, when the center is dramatically expanding the breadth of its work, we want to reflect on where we are and where we're going. That's where you come in. You are a vital part of this process. Your feedback will help us decide where to invest our time and resources and what changes, big and small, will make your listening experience more interesting, more engaging, and more fun. So go to bit.ly slash WTP feedback to share your feedback. That's bit.ly slash WTP feedback. Happy listening. I want to turn now to the Constitution, and there are uh, no fewer than, uh, well, let's see, uh, uh, there's a separation of powers argument, there is a First Amendment, a Fourth, and a Fifth Amendment argument, and so let's try to get through those as efficiently as we can. I think there's a Thirteenth Amendment argument in there as well. <laughs> Good. Read all the briefs, yeah. The Thirteenth Amendment, as uh, listeners to the podcast know, prohibits uh, chattel slavery after the Civil War, so we're going to hear about um, that one, too. But let's begin with the separation of powers argument, because in his order ruling against Apple, Magistrate Judge James Orenstein in New York, in an, in an unrelated case construing the All Writs Act, basically said, it's wholly implausible to suppose that with so many of the newly adapted Constitution's drafters and ratifiers in the legislature, the first Congress would so thoroughly trample on that document's very first substantive mandate, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States, that's from Article 1, Section 1, and yet that's precisely the reading the government proposes when it insists that a court may empower the executive to exercise power that the legislator has considered yet declined to allow. Joe, what do you make of that argument that basically Congress refused to enact this uh, de decryption requirement in the CALEA statute from 1994, and therefore th for the court to impose it by legislative fiat would be a violation of the separation of powers? I actually think that's a very weak argument. I think, I think, by the way, the EFS argument in its briefs, uh, which we'll get to in a moment, are among the strongest arguments that can be made on Apple's side. But I think that's actually a weak argument because I think it's very hard to to divine congressional intent from from bills that were not enacted uh, en enacted. And I think, as far as Kalia goes, I think all sides agree that Kalia doesn't apply here. And and the debate on the Kalia side is whether or not Kalia so occupied the field that no reasonable interpretation of Kalia could conclude that there's any space left for a court to issue an order like the All Writs Act. Um, and so I think it ultimately comes back to you know the 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 role of the 
legislatures and the role of the courts. And I think it's also worth noting a, a point I haven't seen really made anywhere, and that is that a lot of state legislatures have actually enacted requirements for the citizenry to help law enforcement by operation of statute when uh, when law enforcement uh, asks. And we cite a case in our brief involving the Connecticut statute, and the case we talk about in our brief involved a, a security guard who was asked by police to help subdue an official, uh, a, an employee of a company, and refused uh, the officer's commands, and was charged with a misdemeanor of Connecticut under Connecticut law for failing to help uh, a law enforcement official. So I think that you know, unless you believe, and and it's a very Kalia is a very difficult statute to understand uh, in the first place. Unless you believe that Kalia completely occupied this field. If you concede that there's any space left for regulation of non-CLIA covered conduct, then again it gets back to the, the All Writs Act and what is uh, reasonable. And as far as you know, legislative history relating to bills that were never passed goes, um, I think that's among the weakest uh, arguments for an interpretation in Apple's favor here. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, David, you can t- defend the uh, separation of powers argument if you like uh, uh, or not. And then also let's introduce the argument in your brief that as applied here, the compelled speech doctrine renders this court's order unconstitutional because it forces Apple into a position of hypocrisy between its beliefs and its compelled statements. Why do you believe that this order would result yeah. in compelled speech? I'm going to answer those questions. I'm going to close my window first because there's a protest right outside my office. So oh, how First Amendment friendly question. and appropriate. We, That's we, right. We, what is the protest about? We have to ask. When you come back, assuming you haven't joined the protest, then you can tell us what... Okay. what, what sorry, I was yeah, asking... I mean, just what, just, little, sorry, I'm just curious. Our, our listeners are at the edge of their seats. What is the protest about? I, you know, I can't tell. it's very loud but it's actually not i can't but i don't have great sound quality just volume so i'm not sure i'm we're not far from city hall so it's not that unusual good Uh, here's the first amendment and that nicely tees up your response to this question that's right so i don't have a whole lot to say about the separation of powers argument i i don't think it's i i don't think it's as weak i i actually think that um to me the all writs act is written in a way uh, when you talk about appropriate, uh, you know, appropriate, you pr- uh, agreeable to the principles of law, that um, that you're you're sort of the courts, even just without sort of framing it in a separation of powers way, are supposed to look um, at what the established principles of law here. And again, this is just not. Um, I, I, I completely agree that many, many times congressional intent is impossible to divine. But here you have a situation with Kalia where Congress at least twice expressly rejected. Um, attempts to extend Kalia to um, you know to companies to, to device creators, uh, device manufacturers like Apple. So I, I do think it's actually, if there is going to be a compelling case or a case where it's sort of easy to look at what Congress has done, this this might be it. Um, but you know, our brief did focus on the First Amendment issues, and I do think that the specific assistance that's being requested here really creates um, a, a very specific First Amendment problem that you're not going to have in your typical All Writs Act case. And that's right. because what the government has done here, the way the way Apple's system works, and, and frankly the way um, – Many uh, many secure many uh, security systems work is that in order for Apple to push in an update to a phone to get a phone to accept that update, 
it requires that update is required to be digitally signed by Apple. And this is a really sensible thing because we this tells the phone that this is actually coming from this update's actually coming from Apple. It's actually approved by Apple. This is authentic, right? Uh, signatures are really important technology because without them, people would not know when they were offered an update, right, whether or not it would be reliable. And we could have the situation where people actually did not update their phones because they didn't know how or, or any device they have, right? Um, and then we'd, we'd have things that on one level didn't work. It also might be quite might be quite insecure. Um, a digital signature, in many ways, is completely analogous to a paper signature. When you sign your name to something, you are certifying it as authentic. Uh, you are uh, you are endorsing it as things that you believe in. When you're telling uh, you know when you're telling your customers that yes, this is something we think is good. This is something we think is is important. We think this is something that's not going to be harmful. That's all the things that a digital signature means. As we say in our brief, it, in many ways, if, if the analogy breaks down at all, it's only because digital signatures are probably more reliable than paper signatures because they're almost impossible to forge. Um, so when you require Apple to not only create this program, uh, it's essentially you know, editing its operating system, but to digitally sign that operating system, that is speech. You are compelling them to speak. You are compelling them to endorse uh, in, endorse this thing they've been forced to create, even though they didn't want to. You are telling them to communicate that this is something good and something we think you should do. Um, that is compelled speech, and the First Amendment the First Amendment sharply limits the situations in which the government can compel speech. <clears throat> right. Great. I, could, I can go on and I talk about it in much more detail. That, that tees it up very well. Joe, your response to uh, the argument made both by David and by Apple that forcing, sure. forcing uh, Apple to create new code is compelled speech and viewpoint discrimination and under well-settled sure. law, computer code is treated as speech. What's the response? Sure. So, so arguably that is correct. There's, there's debate on that point. But let's assume that it is speech. Um, a couple of points I think bear mention. First is, it's among the less protected speech that's out there. Um, it is it is commercial speech. It's largely you know viewpoint neutral. It's not the same kind of speech as requiring someone to you know take a loyalty oath to an institution that they don't believe in or violate their core religious or philosophical principles in the same way. It's commercial speech, so it is less regulated as speech goes. But even putting aside that fact, it is, it is the case that government regularly requires in law enforcement assistance contexts speech in aid of its law enforcement functions. For example, suppose I'm a store owner and I see a criminal running down the street with a bag of, of money that he just stole from the bank, and the dye pack has exploded all over him, and you know gold coins are, 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 are pouring out of the bag one by one. And there's no doubt in my mind, I hear the alarm and I hear sirens, that a bank robber has just run by my store, okay? And he turn, he, there's, there's, at the end of the store, there's, uh, the, the road, there's an alleyway, and you can go right or left. He runs down to the alleyway, turns right out of the line of sight of police that are chasing him. Police then come by and they say to me, which way did he go? 
Which way did he go? Under the law in most states, and dating back to common law to the time of King James, you're required to answer that question as a citizen. You're required to speak, and you're also required to speak the truth, right? If the criminal went right and, you know, you say he went that way, pointing left or saying, end of the alleyway, take a left, and you thereby frustrate the investigation, if you fail to aid the investigation, you're going to have a hard time arguing that your speech was protected, even if you think that the criminal, you know, did right by robbing the bank. Even if you agree in your deeply held core convictions that the people running the bank were a bunch of thieves and this guy, as he ran past you saying, you know, said, I'm just going to give the money back to the poor, right? So you are required to speak and speak the truth in the face of a valid law enforcement request. And by the way, that's a law enforcement request that did not come with a court order attached to it. That's kind of an on-the-spot request that law enforcement makes of you. The individual who I mentioned to you in the Connecticut case, required to a security guard, required at the command of the police official to jump into uh, a fight with, a, with a, uh, an employee that was resisting arrest. I mean, you know, again, it's probably more action than speech, but required to put his, put his safety in jeopardy. Um, in order to effectuate a valid command of law enforcement. I mean, to be sure, all of those has, have First Amendment implications. The, the, you know, the Connecticut case has physical safety implications. But I would suggest to your listeners that just to say that it is, it is First Amendment conduct does not end the discussion. It begs the question of what level of, uh, of deference that First Amendment uh, conduct should be accorded. And I could point to you, to, you know, law enforcement officials could point to numerous examples where they ask people questions, uh, and those people are putting aside constitutional privileges against self-incrimination, required to truthfully answer. So it just kind of begs the question and gets back to what's reasonable and right in this case. Great. Uh, uh, David, your response to, to uh, Joe's claim that even assuming that this is uh, protected speech, people can be compelled to speak with a valid order or under reasonable law enforcement request. And then I want you to turn to the next constitutional argument, uh, the Fifth Amendment argument. Apple says that the court's order violates Apple, its own Fifth Amendment right to due process because it deprives Apple of the right to be free from arbitrary deprivation of its liberty and by conscripting a private property with an attenuated connection to the crime, uh, this is, uh, violates Apple's uh, liberty rights under the due process clause. Right. And well, let me, just responding to the, the First Amendment arguments, I, I don't disagree with Joe that there are many situations where someone is compelled to speak and, it's, and the law readily accepts that, that that's appropriate. But those situations deal with compelled disclosure of facts. And, and, the, and the first, under, the first, under the compelled speech doctrine, um, we treat compelled disclosure of facts much differently than compelled affirmations of belief, which is what we have in this situation. So this is not the situation where the government is going to Apple and say, tell us which way the criminal ran, right? This is not saying, tell us which way. This is, this is the government going to Apple and saying, uh, the criminal ran, tell us, uh, we, the criminal ran to the right. Uh, we want you to tell everyone the criminal ran to the right. We want you to, we want you to say as if that was your own belief. Um, regardless of what Apple actually thinks. We have a situation here where they're being asked both to create software that they don't want to create, that they don't believe is a good thing, right, but to modify their operating system in this way, which is counter to their goals for providing security to their customers. 
Um, and then to sign that and say, yes, and we endorse this, and this is authentic, and this is valid, and this is something we think is good, that's not just disclosing which way the criminal ran. That's putting your stamp of approval, your in personal endorsement, on a statement with which you disagree. So to me, that's much closer to forcing to someone to take a loyalty oath or requiring someone uh, you know, requiring someone uh, to make a statement that's antithetical for this belief. That's why, with the way, what we think this is, and we've said this in our brief, is this is forcing Apple into a position of hypocrisy. And that really is where the compelled speech doctrine has its strongest application. Um, and just briefly also, I mean, this is, I, I don't think for the same reason, I don't think this is a viewpoint neutral order. If it were viewpoint neutral, it actually would be ineffective. Um, a digital signature is, 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 requires Apple to take a viewpoint, and without that, the order wouldn't have any effect. So it's, it's inherently and necessarily uh, viewpoint-based. Um, I also don't believe that this is a com commercial speech context. This is not the situation where someone is advertising a product and you're requiring them to disclose harmful ingredients or side effects. I mean, that's where, that's where you would see the intersection between commercial speech and compelled speech. And I also don't think there's really that much of a debate that computer code is speech. All the courts that have considered that issue have held that it is and recognized that speaking in computer language is as protected speech as speaking in any other language. So I, I do think that there is a really for compelling First Amendment argument against the order here. Great. Well, that's clear. Um, uh, do you want to turn to the F Fifth Amendment argument? If to... you're ready, I can I can turn to the Fifth Amendment well, argument. I think, I think we should just, because we've got to do the Fifth as well as the, the Fourth Amendment to finish up. So uh, to tell us about your views about the idea, Apple's claim that this deprives it of liberty without due process of law. Yeah, and I really think this sort of ties it. To me, it ties into the First Amendment argument. And you know, I'm keen on the First Amendment argument because that's what we wrote our brief on. But we had the idea in there, and part of what you get with compelled speech is the idea is that you can't, you know, uh, that you're essentially conscripting Apple into government service, right? Into 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 uh, taking it, uh, telling their technologists, okay, now you now have to work for the government for a month, right? And um, and we think that that plays into the compelled speech argument. You're actually forcing them to create speech to the government specifications, not to their own specifications. There also, there's also a Fifth Amendment dimension to that as well, is that you are, without due process of law, uh, forcing them to devote their resources and their time and their liberty um, in the service of the government. And I think that also raises core uh, Fifth, Amendment, Fifth Amendment issues there as well. Thank you for that. All right, uh, Joe, uh, responses to the Fifth Amendment claim, and if you obviously we've talked a lot about the first, so you can uh, say anything you like about that as well. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that uh, that you know the key phrase is you know due process of law, and I think that the fact that you know we're we're going through the litigation that we're going through, and the fact that this was you know something issued by a court as opposed to some administrative subpoena just issued by the government you know, tells you that there has been ample process of law that, that's been brought to bear. Uh, and I think that that, um, coupled with the fact that, you know, the court also ordered the government to pay Apple reasonable compensation for its efforts, um, I think significantly diminishes, if not defeats any Fifth Amendment uh, or uh, claim. And I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think there's really uh, a very strong Thirteenth Amendment argument. Either. I think the best arguments are the, the First Amendment arguments. Um, and even some better ones that I thought of, but maybe I can talk with Dave about those offline. <laughs> <laughs> no, you may not be able to get away I, with that. I do that. represent a, 
I do represent a client, after all. So. Well, here we're just, just in the spirit of open constitutional debate, and this is a great one. We have one, at least one last amendment to put on the table, and that is the Fourth Amendment. In a brief filed on behalf of uh, Google and a whole series of tech companies, uh, Amici argued that um, the Supreme Court, in recent cases interpreting the Fourth Amendment, like the Riley case, which said that when you arrest someone, you can't open up his or her cell phone uh, without uh, a warrant, and also the Jones case, which said that you can't use a GPS tracker to track someone 24-7 in public, all cautioned against uh, interpretations that would lead to the collection of a lot of data, and therefore that um, courts should be hesitant and apply a reasonableness requirement in right. demanding data. So, um, uh, Joe, it's your turn. What uh, uh, sure. is Just, your thought about that? I think that? we can just dispose of this one very quickly because, um, number one, the phone was owned by the county. Number two, the terrorist consented to its search. And number three, as far as reasonableness uh, goes, you know, the government did what you want the government to do. Went to a neutral independent magistrate judge, got a search warrant based on probable cause to search the vehicle and the contents of the vehicle. The same process, by the way, that it goes through when it asks to search someone's, you know, email account at Google or search the iCloud account uh, of a user at Apple. So, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, it's hard for Apple to argue that there's a strong Fourth Amendment case here, while at the same time regularly turning over vast troves of data from people's iCloud accounts in response to valid court-issued search warrants tendered by the government. I mean, there, you know, the Fourth Amendment is kind of an either-or thing, right? There either is a Fourth Amendment issue or there isn't. Uh, and if there, if there is a Fourth Amendment issue on these facts, you know, I'm wondering why Apple's responding to search warrants at all from the government. I think this is this this the fact that they are um, that they are not doing so here. While I think there are some some better arguments on the First Amendment front, I think the Fourth Amendment is just. I, I think I just don't think there's any serious Fourth Amendment argument here. Um, just my view. Great. Uh, well, we're uh, going to start to wrap up our constitutional discussion. Uh, David, do you think there is a Fourth Amendment argument that in the spirit of recent Supreme Court cases, um, even with a valid warrant, you can't get a huge amount of uh, information if that would be unreasonable. And then since our listeners, I know if they're at the edge of their constitutional seats, what precisely <laughs> is the claim that this violates the 13th prohibition against uh, chattel slavery? So, uh, well, I do think there, I, I think the important point about the Fourth Amendment argument is, first of all, is that it, it, I think I think Riley and Jones are important. Um, just if for no other reason telling us that, that we need to actually uh, perhaps treat are cell phones differently than other types of devices that they they contain such a tremendous amount of personal personal information that, that they have special fourth amendment concerns and I think even if you say in this case um, and, and where this really to me brings it home is that is that this issue is really about much more than this one phone uh, this is and the government has said this, the FBI said this, is that they're, they're looking for this to, to create precedent, that this is the type of order that can be issued under the authority of the All Writs Act, and that, and that they will go on and now try and use this authority, and local law enforcement wants to do the same thing, uh, to, to uh, require orders, similar orders from apples or, for, or from other, to break into, to require them to create technology that will allow them to defeat encryption systems. Um, that certainly raises 
important Fourth Amendment issues. And, and I think it's, it's, it's hard to dismiss the Fourth Amendment concerns, um, even if you think in this particular case you, could make, you can address them. So um, briefly, the, third, the argument of the 13th Amendment is, is, is essentially that this is involuntary servitude, that you are requiring Apple uh, you know, to essentially become uh, you know, conscripted by the government to service their now their, the government's technologists. Um, which is not a job they don't want to have. Um, I'm not a 13th Amendment expert, um, but I I think it's, uh, you know, I would would be surprised if this is the, uh, if that was the grounds on which uh, Judge Kim reversed her, her order. Wonderful. Well, this has been a constitutional feast. We have discussed Article (laughs) 1, Section 1, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Thirteenth Amendment, as well as understanding much better than we did when we started the arguments on both sides of the All Writs Act. And that means that it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Joe, let me ask you to summarize uh, as concisely as you can why you think that the judge's order that Apple uh, create this device and turn over the data uh, does not violate the All Writs Act or the Constitution. Sure. Uh, you know, look, at common law for centuries, uh, citizens have been required to assist law enforcement in the exercise of their law enforcement functions. Uh, if uh, the police jump into your car and say, follow that car, you are required to follow that car. If they are trying to subdue someone uh, resisting arrest and they ask for your help, you're required to help them. Uh, and I think this case illustrates that, particularly when mapped against those examples, which no one really seriously disputes, um, the reasonableness of the request is is evident. The need for the data is also to to me and the the company organizations that I represent, the law enforcement organizations that I represent, manifest. I would encourage all of your uh, listeners to look at the brief filed by the government in the district court in the Eastern District litigation. They filed it last week, and it goes through goes through a number of examples where the All Writs Act has been used, uh, including by technology companies, to protect their economic rights, um, and goes through the examples that Apple has been willing to assist uh, with in the past. It also highlights a number of cases, including those involving predatory pedophiles who are behind bars only, only because of data recovered from their iPhones. And I think, you know, there are serious constitutional issues across a range of of constitutional amendments and doctrines. There are serious policy issues. There are serious legal issues. But I would respectfully, respectfully submit to your listeners that before making a judgment, they consider the arguments and the implications uh, on the other side of of what it would mean uh, if Apple's, you know, view that it gets to decide when it decides to help law enforcement uh, is is upheld and affirmed. And I would just ask your listeners to keep an open mind because the ripple effect of this ruling, uh, either way, I would concede, uh, will lead to consequences both known and unknown. And stakes are high. Thank you so much for that. Uh, David, last word to you. Why do you believe that the judge's order to Apple to turn over the data does violate the the All Writs Act and the Constitution? Well, I I think it it violates the All Writs Act uh, to me because it's 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 an extraordinary, exceptional, unprecedented burden in the you know, over two hundred years this law has been in in effect. Uh, it has never been used in this way to require someone to 
uh, to expend this amount of effort. I mean, it's essentially saying it's not just, you know, here, I need your car, drive me to drive me someplace. It's, you know, it's, I want to use your car and you as a driver for a month. You know, I, I, so I think even on that level, but I, what I really want listeners to understand and what we really are trying to say with the First Amendment argument is that when you force a company to endorse software, their own malicious software updates like this, you're not just allowing access to this one phone. You're creating a precedent that's going to allow courts to weaken security of communication systems generally. Um, it's, it's, it's by creating this, this vulnerability in their technology that doesn't currently exist, Apple's making its iPhones, this version of its, of its operating system, less secure for everybody. Okay? When you multiply that by the number of to- other, uh, other situations in which law enforcement wants similar orders, you're getting a really substantial decrease in information security. Okay, that might assist law enforcement. I, I don't. I, I don't uh, doubt that it will assist law enforcement. But it's also going to make the security of everybody's communications, everybody who uses electronic devices, all of our electronic devices are now to become less secure, become more vulnerable to malicious attempts to get our information. Um, and that is a really, I think, uh, serious, serious problem. Uh, and I think that's really highlighted by uh, the constitutional uh, and statutory issues in this case. Thank you so much, Joseph DeMarco and David Green, for a truly illuminating discussion of this fascinating case. You have indeed opened our minds to the complexity of the arguments, and I'm very grateful to you for educating our listeners. Joe, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.